Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of murder, mutilation, sexual abuse of minors, self-harm, and attempted suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Most of us would never say we're the same person we were as a child. When we look back and see how far we've come, we'll often discover that our greatest failures were also our greatest moments of growth. We've learned from our mistakes and have changed for the better. But how far does that idea extend? Can we, for example, absolve a person of their crimes once they've gotten enough distance from them? Or are there some marks that never truly wash out? For Mary Bell, that abstract question became a very real problem. Because her story, her crimes, were so captivating that they were seared into the public consciousness. And that kind of burn leaves a lasting mark. One that's almost impossible to run from. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. Last week, we met Mary Bell and saw her fall victim to a cycle of violence. After years of her mother's abuse, Mary lashed out at others in similar ways and eventually strangled a boy to death. Today, we'll follow Mary as she strikes again. Then we'll watch what came next, the trial, the sentencing, the controversy. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. In the summer of 1968, 11-year-old Mary Bell committed her first murder. Martin Brown was just four when Mary strangled him to death. Because her hands were so small, she left no marks on his neck, so the police wrote his death off as an accident. But Mary and her best friend, 13-year-old Sherry, knew what had really happened. As a reminder, that's not Sherry's real name because we want to protect her privacy. 
Together, the girls relished their twisted secret. You see, for them, crime was kind of cool, as was the idea of being on the run. A few weeks after Martin's death, Sherry suggested they actually run away. She'd done it a couple of times before, whenever she was particularly unhappy at home, so she knew exactly where they could go. Before we continue with the psychology for this episode, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. According to behavioral scientist Stephanie Brooks Holliday, kids who exhibit problem behaviors like vandalism or fighting are susceptible to running away from home. If they've gone on the lam before, that's also a strong indicator they'll do it again. And if both those factors are present, well, that just makes it all the more likely. Fellow behavioral scientist Joan Tucker found that running away can also exacerbate these problematic behaviors. If they weren't present before, runaway kids are at a much higher risk for developing them. And the more likely a kid is to leave home, the more vulnerable they become to things like abuse and sexual assault. That in turn carries over and makes them all the more likely to run away again. It was a vicious cycle that Sherry was familiar with. And though Mary had never run away before, she'd already displayed a string of other problematic behaviors. Like Sherry, she'd gotten into fights and committed vandalism. Mary was also a self-described daredevil. She never backed down from a challenge, even when it was a bad idea. So it was only a matter of time before she literally followed Sherry's footsteps and ran away. That day came in June, when Mary and Sherry boarded a bus to the town of South Shields, about 10 miles away. There, they headed to the home of a man we'll call Paul. He'd taken Sherry in when she ran away before, and the girls figured he'd do so again this time. What Mary didn't realize until they got there was that Paul was a sexual abuser. As they approached the steps of his house, Sherry told her how she and Paul had had sex in the past. She even claimed that she liked it. This news wasn't all that surprising to Mary. Men always took advantage of young girls. At least, that's what she'd been raised to believe. So when Paul answered the door, Mary and Sherry walked in without any hesitation. And just as they'd hoped, Paul invited them to stay. He wanted them to get comfortable and even suggested they take a bath to clean up. But he had no plans to give them privacy. As the two girls washed up, Paul entered the bathroom and attempted to assault Mary. The 11-year-old resisted his advances and managed to push him off. So Paul turned to the only other person in the room. He raped 13-year-old Sherry right in front of Mary. After he was done, Paul left the girls on their own. They curled up in one of the bedrooms to sleep. Sadly, neither of them were all that upset by what Paul had done. Mary was used to this kind of treatment, and although Sherry was never abused at home, Paul had long ago convinced her that this was all right. In fact, if it was up to the girls, they would have stayed at that house. But Paul had no use for them anymore, and he wanted them out. Early the next morning, he woke them up and hurried them into a car, he dropped them off on a random back street and sped away. 
Now, it's unclear whether or not Mary or Sherry's parents reported them missing, but as the girls wandered around town on their own, they attracted the attention of some officers and were taken to a police station. There, neither girl said a word about what Paul had done. In their young minds, they believed that if they told anyone about the assault, they'd only get blamed for it. That's what they got for running away. Besides, they knew they were in enough trouble with their parents. Sure enough, when Mary got home, her mother, 28-year-old Betty Bell, beat her. But it was almost as if the crime was worth the punishment. You see, Mary was kind of proud of what she'd done. She'd ridden in a police car and been questioned by officers. She fancied herself a proper criminal, just like her father, 31-year-old Billy, who was always in trouble with the cops. Sherry was also pleased with herself. She liked being in Mary's orbit and found their adventure kind of exciting. The two made a pact. From that point on, they'd do everything together. But their bond was far from perfect. One second, they were the best of friends. The next, they were at each other's throats. A week after they ran away, a neighbor, 12-year-old George Reed, saw one of those fights. And it wasn't simply two girls yelling at each other, either. Mary grabbed Sherry and threw her to the ground. She hit and scratched her while screaming about being a murderer. We don't know what caused the blow-up, only that when Mary looked up and saw George watching, she didn't quiet down. Instead, she pointed to the abandoned house where police had found Martin Brown and said that's where she had killed him. Hearing this, George just laughed. He didn't think Mary was telling the truth. He saw her the same way the rest of the neighborhood kids did, a troublemaker who exaggerated stories for attention. Of course, Sherry knew better. And despite their squabble, it seems Sherry wanted nothing more than to be a part of Mary's schemes. On July 31, 1968, Sherry finally got her wish. That afternoon, Mary and 13-year-old Sherry were playing in the street outside their homes. That's when they saw their neighbor, three-year-old Brian Howe, with his older brother. The two boys were messing around with a pair of scissors. At that moment, an idea popped into Mary's head. She turned to Sherry and suggested they take Brian away. Per usual, Sherry agreed. They waited for the older boy to leave. Then they approached Brian and told him to come with them. They were going to go play somewhere else, they said. The little boy had no reason not to trust them and willingly followed. When Sherry asked for the scissors, he handed them right over. Then Mary led them all down into the Tin Lizzie, which was what they called the garbage dump across the train tracks. Local kids often played there, even though it was filled with all kinds of debris. But on that day, they were alone, just the three of them. As the sun began to set behind them, Mary turned to Brian and told him to lift up his neck. Once again, he did as she said. Then she grabbed his exposed throat and squeezed hard. This was a very different experience than when she'd strangled four-year-old Martin Brown. Back then, it was almost like she'd been in a trance. She was gentle and distant. 
Now she was focused and violent, and she knew exactly what she was doing. When Brian tried to break free, she didn't let go. Within moments, she wrestled him to the ground. According to Mary, while all of this was going on, Sherry simply stood back and laughed. But according to Sherry, she told Mary to let Brian go. When Mary refused and asked her to take over, Sherry decided enough was enough. She dropped the scissors and ran away. But even with her partner in crime gone, Mary didn't let up. She kept her hands around Brian's neck and strangled the three-year-old to death. Afterwards, Mary raced home and retrieved a razor blade. Then she went over to Sherry's and asked her to come back to the Tin Lizzie. We don't know if Mary confessed to killing Brian right then and there, or if she kept her friend in the dark. Either way, Sherry's previous concerns seemed to have faded away. Now she was intrigued. So she followed Mary all the way back to the crime scene. They made their way past mounds of garbage until eventually Sherry tripped over Brian's head. But rather than scream or cry for help, Sherry leaned down and prodded at him. Then she watched as Mary took the razor and began mutilating Brian's body. When Mary was finished, she hid the razor blade under a concrete block and the girls went back home. Then they sat on Mary's doorstep and waited for the chaos to begin. Around five that afternoon, 14-year-old Pat Howe realized her little brother was missing. She went outside and asked Mary and Sherry if they'd seen Brian. They both said no, but offered to help look for him. There was no reason for Pat to suspect the girls of anything sinister, and she was thankful for the help. They were just being neighborly. Of course, that was far from the truth. Deep down, Mary and Sherry both got a kick out of knowing something no one else did and being involved in the search party made it even more exciting. As the search went on, the entire neighborhood seemed to turn out to help, but still there was no sign of Brian. Finally, around 7 p.m., Pat felt she'd run out of options. She had to call the cops. When the police arrived, Mary and Sherry, along with most of the other kids, returned to their homes. The professionals were there now, and it only took a few more hours for them to find Brian. Around 11 p.m. that night, sirens blared through the neighborhood, waking everyone up. Mary got out of bed and made her way downstairs, where she found her dad on the porch. Like their other neighbors, Billy had stepped outside to watch the cops speeding by. When she asked him what was going on, Billy told her that the police had found Brian Howe. In response, all Mary said was, oh. She didn't have to ask where he was, she already knew. She didn't have to ask if he was dead, she already knew. Up next, Mary throws her best friend under the bus. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. 
Now, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. On July 31, 1968, 11-year-old Mary Bell strangled 3-year-old Brian Howe at a garbage dump known as the Tin Lizzie. That's where police officers found his body later that night. Detective Chief Inspector James Dobson was called in to lead the investigation. Right off the bat, he assumed that this had to be the work of a very sick man. But as he took a closer look at the evidence, he doubted whether that was true. The marks on Brian's neck were very light. It seemed impossible that an adult could have been so gentle while strangling him. Strange as it sounded, Dobson suspected that the culprit had to be a child. So over the next 24 hours, Dobson and his officers questioned over 1,200 Newcastle kids and their parents. And a few of them were invited back for another chat, including Mary and Sherry. On August 1st, detectives stopped by Mary's house to ask her clarifying questions. Mary's mom, 26-year-old Betty, was away in Glasgow, so Mary's dad, 29-year-old Billy, was the parent in charge. And Billy, well, he had a long history with the police. Whether or not he suspected his daughter of foul play, he certainly didn't want to give authorities any ammo. As far as he was concerned, when the cops came calling, you said nothing. So he coached Mary to be evasive, and she dodged all the officer's questions. But while Billy was proud of his daughter for staying quiet, Sherry's parents were horrified at theirs. They wanted her to be honest about what she knew. Instead, she smiled and treated the whole thing like it was a joke. Perhaps that was all part of the plan, and it certainly seemed like they had some kind of script they were sticking to, each girl told the cops they'd seen Brian around 12.30 p.m. They also claimed they'd been on their own and not with each other. Dobson found that suspicious. Here were two best friends who had both seen the murdered boy at the same time of day, and yet he was supposed to believe they hadn't been together? Something just wasn't right. 
So Dobson sent his officers to follow up with the girls again. It's likely that Mary and Sherry spoke to each other between these interviews, but we don't know what was said. All we know is that this time around, Sherry changed her tune. She admitted that she'd played with Mary on the day of the murder. Mary also told the officers that she remembered something else now, too. But where Sherry had gotten more truthful, Mary got less. She said she'd seen an eight-year-old boy named Adam playing with Brian right before his death. She'd even witnessed this boy hitting Brian for no reason. Then, to top it all off, she told the detective that Adam had been carrying a pair of silver scissors. That last part was a crucial mistake for two reasons. First, the police were easily able to disprove Mary's story. Adam had an airtight alibi. He and his family hadn't even been in the neighborhood that afternoon. They were at the airport. So Mary had to be lying about seeing him with Brian. Second, the police had never made any mention of the scissors they'd found near Brian's body. That meant that Mary knew they were involved in Brian's murder some other way. So investigators were confident that she knew more than she was letting on. Armed with this information, Dobson wanted to speak with Sherry one more time. He probably figured that out of the two, Sherry was more likely to crack. So on August 4th, Dobson sat down with Sherry and laid out everything he knew. Then, he hit her with a big finish. He thought she was involved in the murder. What had once seemed like fun and games was beginning to be too much for the 13-year-old. Faced with a murder charge, Sherry burst into tears and started to confess. Only she didn't tell Dobson the entire truth. She claimed that Mary had led her down to the Tin Lizzie after Brian was already dead. That's where Mary told her that she'd strangled the boy and warned her not to tell anybody. Sherry knew she needed to give the police some proof that she was telling the truth. So she offered to show Dobson where Mary had hidden the razor blade she used to mutilate Brian. 15 minutes later, they were at the crime scene where Sherry pointed to a concrete block. Officers lifted it up to find the bloodied blade. Two hours later, officers collected Mary from her house and brought her down to the station. There, Dobson interrogated Mary for several hours. But despite her young age, Mary held her own. She was much more steadfast than Sherry and lied through her teeth. No matter what the cops threw at her, Mary refused to budge. Eventually, they had no choice but to let her go. So Dobson turned his sights back on Sherry. But by the next day, her story had changed again. It was her fourth statement, but it seemed as close to the truth as they were gonna get from her. Sherry confessed that she'd been present while Mary had started strangling Brian, but she swore she hadn't been there when the boy died. Dobson knew he couldn't charge Mary based solely on Sherry's story, but he was certain they were getting closer, all they needed now was some proof. 
In the meantime, he went to pay his respects at Brian's funeral. Mary was amongst the large crowd, only she wasn't sobbing or offering condolences like the rest of the guests. She simply stood off to the side and watched the coffin. And she laughed. It could have been nerves getting the best of her. Mary later admitted that happened sometimes when she was under stress. But that wasn't the way Dobson saw it. No one in their right mind acted like that at a funeral. As soon as the service was over, he called Mary back in for questioning. He was determined to get the answers he wanted. By this point, Mary was aware that Sherry had been at the police station for long stretches of time, and she must have known that didn't look good for her. When she walked into the station, she was pale and tense. It was almost like she could sense her time was up. She didn't know what Sherry had said, but it was easy to guess. And if Sherry had been willing to throw her under the bus, then Mary would do the same. It was every girl for herself now. In the interrogation room, Mary took a seat across from Dobson. Then she began to go through the sequence of events, except instead of admitting to murdering Brian, she pinned the entire thing on Sherry. She claimed she'd tried to stop her friend, but Sherry had finished the job and then mutilated the boy's body. While Dobson doubted that Mary's version was true, the case had essentially become a case of she said, she said. It was one girl's word over another. So with nothing else to work with, it was up to the courts to figure out who was really at fault. That very same day, both 11-year-old Mary Bell and 13-year-old Sherry Dunlop were charged with the murder of Brian Howe. Soon after that, police reopened the case of four-year-old Martin Brown. Neither girl had mentioned him during the interrogations, but given their similarities, Dobson had a hunch that the two deaths were connected. And though there was only circumstantial evidence tying them to Martin's death, it was damning all the same. By the time the girls went to court later that year, they were each charged with both murders. At their hearing in December of 1968, both Mary and Sherry testified against each other. But their temperaments couldn't have been more different. On the stand, Sherry acted how most people imagined a 13-year-old girl would in this situation. She struggled to keep up with and understand the trial. She cried or struggled to find the right words. Through it all, her family surrounded her, showering her with love and support. Mary couldn't say the same of her family. While her father tried to keep her spirits up during breaks, her mother was clearly upset. Betty had always resented her daughter, and now she had a good reason for it. She'd brought public shame on the family. Perhaps that's why Mary remained quiet and stoic in the courtroom. She never shed a tear or showed any signs of remorse. Later, she recalled thinking the trial had nothing to do with her. It was like she was watching a TV show about someone else. The problem was that her demeanor made Mary look like she truly didn't care. As a result, it was easy to cast her as the villain and Sherry as the innocent girl who was led astray. The jury was much more willing to believe Sherry's version of events. 
But it wasn't only Sherry's testimony that painted a grim picture of Mary. Court-appointed psychologists were brought in and testified that Mary showed classic symptoms of psychopathy. Officially, that's a neuropsychiatric disorder. Common signs include a lack of empathy, inappropriate emotional responses, and no self-control. As a result, psychopathic individuals are generally antisocial. They're also much more likely to be involved in some type of criminal activity. Even when these indications arise, diagnosing someone, especially a child, as a psychopath is still controversial within the medical field. A lot of that has to do with the fact that the symptoms aren't super clear-cut. That said, researcher Nathaniel Anderson found that most of the significant traits of psychopathy become apparent before the age of 10. So it is possible to diagnose early. In a lot of ways, Mary did fit some of the vague specifications. She was deceitful and manipulative. She also lacked any sort of guilt or remorse over what she'd done. Of course, all of this stemmed from Mary's horrific childhood. For years, she'd been physically and sexually abused by her mother. And a poor upbringing is one of the key factors that can contribute to the disorder. But none of this trauma was ever mentioned at the trial because Mary still didn't know how to talk about it. And because she didn't speak up, experts just labeled her a psychopath and moved on. From there, her fate was sealed. On December 17th, the jury found 11-year-old Mary Bell guilty of two counts of manslaughter. The judge ordered Mary to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, which in England basically meant that she was given an indefinite sentence. Hearing that, Mary showed a sign of real emotion for the first time during the entire trial. She began to cry. Meanwhile, on the other side of the room, 13-year-old Sherry was overwhelmed with relief. She was acquitted of all charges, and as one girl reunited with her family, the other was led away by guards. That's when it finally hit Mary. She was going to jail for the rest of her life. Up next, Mary's new life begins, but nothing much changes. Now back to the story. In December of 1968, 11-year-old Mary Bell began her indefinite stint behind bars. Because she was still a child, she was sent to an English reform school called Red Bank. Technically, it was an all-boys facility, but they made special arrangements for Mary to attend. At first, she didn't mind her new digs. Red Bank offered an excellent education, and she even got to spend time in the art room drawing. Most importantly, it was a chance to get away from her mother's abuse. Of course, 28-year-old Betty Bell had no intention of letting her daughter go. Even though Mary was locked away, Betty visited at least once a month. Mary had complicated feelings about that. On the one hand, she was still a child who was excited to see her mom. But after each of Betty's visits, Mary always seemed to regress. She'd get aggressive and act as though rules didn't apply to her. She fought with the other kids, swore at teachers, and lied just because she could. School officials noticed the pattern and tried to stop Betty from visiting. 
but they were informed that they couldn't stop a mother from seeing her child, no matter how badly it affected the kid. If Mary had told the Red Bank administrators about her mother's abuse, they might have been able to do more. But Mary still didn't know how to process her trauma or even talk about it. So Betty continued to torment her daughter for years. Unfortunately, Betty wasn't the only one hurting Mary. One night in 1970, the 13-year-old was alone in her room when a teacher we'll call Mr. Williams stepped inside. He'd had his eye on Mary, he said. That night was the first time Mr. Williams sexually assaulted Mary. Then, that same weekend, he raped her twice more. Mary's feelings about these assaults are contradictory and complex. In one turn, she claims that it was consensual, but almost in the same breath, she remembers crying and asking the teacher to stop. Following the third assault, she says she ran to the bathroom to throw up. I want to take a moment to reiterate that Mary was only 13 at the time. This teacher, though we don't know his actual age, was an adult. So no matter what Mary says, there's no version of this story where the assaults could be considered consensual. Even still, it's hard for sexual assault survivors to accept the truth. According to clinical psychologist Lori Haskell, sexual assault victims rewrite history way more often than we'd imagine. It's easier to cope if they ignore the abuse and minimize or outright deny what happened to them. Because of this, their actions don't always make sense to the outside world. Plenty of individuals who've been assaulted return to their abusers again and again. It's not until they've gotten space and the benefit of hindsight that they can see the abuse for what it was. This was certainly the case for Mary. She didn't have the capacity to understand what was going on. But after the third assault, another teacher caught wind of what was happening. Mary begged her not to say anything because she thought no one would believe her and that it would only cause trouble. But the teacher went ahead and reported it anyway. Sadly, Mary was right. The headmaster didn't buy the story and swept it all under the rug. As far as we can tell, Mr. Williams remained at Red Bank. The next few years of Mary's life continued to be a living hell. Though she tried her best, she didn't have any proper coping mechanisms to process her trauma. So she lashed out in any way she could think of. She messed around with the other boys. She made herself sick. She even broke a window and cut herself with the glass, but nothing ever made her feel better. Then in 1973, she turned 16 and everything changed. In the eyes of the law, Mary was now an adult. It was time for her to actually be behind bars and she was transferred to a women's prison called Style. But Mary didn't understand how she was supposed to act in this new environment and had trouble adjusting. She fought with other inmates and gave the guards attitude. As punishment, they'd throw her in solitary for weeks on end. It took her a while to figure out how to play the game within the prison walls. But even then, she didn't know how to deal with her own feelings. And because she couldn't manage these complex emotions, she ended up hurting herself. 
While in style, Mary attempted suicide on two occasions. But instead of receiving psychiatric help after these incidents, Mary was instead sent to solitary again. As far as she could tell, there was no winning. That was until 1980, when 23-year-old Mary finally got some good news. After 12 years behind bars, she was being released. And that wasn't all. Since she'd been a minor at the time of her high-profile offense, she was getting a truly fresh start, complete with a brand new name. Unfortunately, her new beginning wasn't perfect. Mary moved back in with her mother, 40-year-old Betty, so she wasn't hard to track down. Journalists constantly harassed her, offering her money to tell her story. But Mary turned them all down. She didn't want to talk about what she'd done. And she wasn't the only one who felt that way. Betty was worried that Mary might tell people about all the awful things she'd done to her daughter. So she tried to keep her isolated. That got more complicated when 25-year-old Mary started dating an 18-year-old we'll call Carl. The two had met at a party in September of 1982 and were instantly smitten. Of course, Betty didn't like that at all. She told Carl all about her daughter's crimes. She even insinuated that Mary was sterile, hoping to drive him off. But Carl couldn't be scared away, and Mary refused to stop seeing him. So Betty kicked Mary out. But Mary didn't mind. She moved right in with Carl, and a little over a year later, the 27-year-old had a daughter of her own. We'll call her Alice. Alice was everything to Mary. In fact, when she first saw her baby girl, the whole world seemed to shift. She was hit with that unconditional, overwhelming kind of love. And she knew from then on that her life would forever revolve around Alice. It was around this time that Mary asked for legal anonymity. Now that she had a daughter, she needed better protection. She wouldn't let Alice suffer for what Mary had done as a child. Mercifully, the courts granted Mary's request. She and her daughter were given new identities that would last until Alice was 18. Despite this win, Mary's life was still a struggle. Carl had been okay with Mary's past at first, but now it bothered him. Behind her back, he called Mary a freak show, and when they were together, he often got violent. But she never struck back. She seemed to have her violent tendencies in check by this point. That changed one night in May of 1988. Word finally got back to Mary that Carl had been badmouthing her. Furious, she punched him. And then she ran right out of the house and into the arms of another man. Mary had gotten to know a man we'll call Jim over the past year. They were regulars at a local club and caught each other's eye. Jim was the opposite of Carl. He was closer to Mary's age, very philosophical, didn't drink or do drugs, and he valued family above all else. Mary thought he was exactly what she needed. Four days after ending things with Carl, she and Alice moved in with Jim. 
Despite the whirlwind, Mary and Jim's relationship worked out wonderfully. He was a great father to Alice, and he accepted Mary's past. He believed she'd evolved into a better person, and he didn't hold her to her worst moments. But their lives together weren't as easy as they would have liked. For the next 10 years, Mary, Jim, and Alice moved from town to town. They lived off Social Security and used a slew of aliases. They could never let down their guard. Even though it had been decades since her crimes, the name Mary Bell was still synonymous with monster. To make matters more complicated, in January of 1995, Betty Bell died at age 55. Her death brought up a lot of mixed emotions for Mary. But one thing was now clear. Without her mother looming over her life, she was finally free to tell the truth. And in 1995, she did just that. That November, 38-year-old Mary met journalist Gita Serini. Serini had covered Mary's initial 1968 trial. She'd even written a book about Mary, which had been one of the few reports that showed her a measure of sympathy. Now she wanted to write another book, but with Mary's side of the story this time. The first conversations were difficult, and Mary struggled to talk about her past. But over several months, Serini slowly earned Mary's trust, and Mary told her everything. Now, here's an important part of this story. Serini paid Mary for her story. With that money, Mary moved her family out of the small flat they'd been living in and into a large Victorian house. Finally, it seemed like she might get a quiet life. Unfortunately, that peace shattered in 1998 when Serini's second book about Mary was published to much fanfare. But it wasn't the horrific abuse that Mary endured that caused the stir. It was the money. People didn't think it was right for a murderer to make money off her crimes, and they wanted to let her know that. Soon, there was a media circus outside of Mary's new home, but she refused to talk to any reporters. She just wanted to be left alone. But her daughter, 14-year-old Alice, couldn't help but notice the commotion outside. When she asked her mom what was going on, Mary hesitated. Even when the book had been published, Mary hadn't told her daughter about her past. They were all living under aliases, and Mary had thought it would stay that way for a very long time. But now, there was no hiding what she'd done. Mary had to tell Alice the truth. Fortunately, Alice took it all in stride and did what so many couldn't. She forgave her mother. Even at 14, she understood that Mary wasn't the same person she'd been as a kid. However, the public wasn't so easily swayed. It didn't matter what abuses Mary had experienced or if she showed remorse now. She'd committed atrocious crimes when she was 11, and she deserved to suffer for it. But does one horrible act define a person forever? Should the sins of a child follow them to their grave? Or does everyone, even the most heinous criminal, deserve a second chance? That's up to you to decide.
thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with another episode. For more information on Mary Bell, amongst the many sources we used, we found Cries Unheard by Gita Serini, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Jane O. and Joel Callan, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 